Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a June 23rd episode of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a note to our learners, we will begin publishing our educational series only once a week beginning in July. Please continue to join us on our full-length live and on-demand webinars as we continue to learn more about COVID-19. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to identify challenges faced in the early COVID-19 vaccine trials. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, he will be interviewing Dr. Patrick Flume on his experience running COVID-19 vaccine trials, and this is the second part of their interview. Dr. Allwater and Dr. Flume, thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you, Faith, and uh, delighted to have Dr. Flume uh, join us for more discussions about uh, vaccine studies and how how they're evolving uh, as we accrue additional information uh, and vaccines uh, in an effort to try to combat the pandemic. Uh, so Patrick, I, I was wondering, uh, you, you said you, you're conducting uh, still three vaccine studies. What kind of questions have come up now that the United States has three vaccines that look fair, uh, you know, highly effective uh, but are still investigational um, under FDA uh, emergency use authorization? So that's a very good question. Uh, in the study of any drug, you're always comparing it against something. Uh, that would either be a placebo because there is no effective therapy or it would be to whatever the standard of care would be. So at the beginning of all this pandemic, there was nothing. You would compare it to placebo, which is really the purest and so when you launch these studies, when other products now become authorized, then the patients or the subjects who are participating in the study want, might want to know for sure that they've had the vaccine. So this creates some challenges to how you implement that. One is, do you break the blind and just inform them? Um, and that's essentially what we had to do with pretty much everybody that was involved in the study because they might, if they know they have access to an authorized vaccine, they definitely want to know, did I get the real thing or should I go ahead and get the authorized vaccine? Some um, of the sponsors took a different approach in that there was an opportunity to do a crossover design in which you don't necessarily have to break the blind, but you can now um, let inform the subjects that they are going to receive the vaccine. So. Uh, if in the beginning they had received the placebo, now on the sort of restart of that uh, phase, they now are getting active vaccine. If they got active vaccine, they're now getting placebo. 
they might suspect what they had received based on any kind of side effects, but they don't actually know. So it keeps some of the uh, control over the study, um, but it, it, uh, it raises a whole new you know, territory in terms of how you not only keep your subjects engaged in the study because you really wanna get continued data on them, but also making sure that you can do it in a balanced and ethical manner. Yeah, those, those are uh, highly challenging only because we don't yet have a comparator that's truly FDA approved, which would, would perhaps make this a bit easier. And of course, all the studies are in such a compressed fashion. They really have to adapt. What, how many um, of the patients that have had that crossover design, how many have decided to stick uh, just, uh, you know, uh, as an estimate versus those that have decided to you know, get um, one of the EUA vaccines. So even, even in our studies, if we were unblinding someone that they, the, the sponsor still requested that we try to keep them engaged in the study. They no longer will contribute to the primary endpoint per se uh, of who gets you know, illness with COVID, but you are still accruing data uh, to know this. Because another question in there, these other secondary endpoints is what's the longevity of their antibody response and what is their long-term protection? Because there were people who requested to be unblinded and we then learned that they had actually received active vaccine. So although they are now removed from the you know, blinded portion of the study, there is still you know, learning from the uh, long-term monitoring of those subjects. But in those who, who either became unblinded or uh, committed to the crossover design, the retention rate has actually been quite high. Um, and I would say it's far north of 50%. Um, and I, I think that's a testament to people who volunteer for these studies, realize that there is value. It's not just that they got a vaccine, that they are contributing to our knowledge and, and how we manage this in the future. So one of the questions, um, that have come up, uh, as you mentioned, you want to see how long antibody responses are and, and protection and hoping to keep people enrolled. But um, why are these vaccine studies, for the most part, six months in duration? Um, my basis of understanding is that most vaccine side effects you tend to see in the first you know, four or six weeks or so. Um, is it more for efficacy reasons that it's six months instead of three, or is it, is there really a lot of value with longer term safety data in those remaining months? So what's, what's your view? There, there's a couple of reasons. And, and actually our studies in their total length are two years in duration. Um, the, the efficacy aspect of this, the, the primary endpoint was you know, prevention of symptomatic COVID. And so unlike some studies where you say, I'm gonna test the benefit of this drug and we're gonna see where things are at six months and see whether group A is different from group B, this is event related. And so what you're doing is, although you're monitoring them long-term for antibody response and safety issues, the endpoint is when they become sick. And so what you're doing is you're accumulating um, these cases, and when you have a certain number of cases that you've predetermined is sufficient to see if there's protection, you break the blind on those and you see, well, where is the difference? So in an, in an area which is very hot with infection, it doesn't take long at all to get to that point. 
And that's where you saw the early data with Pfizer and Moderna reporting 90, 95% efficacy. But that doesn't tell you whether that protection continues beyond that you know, two months or three months of data acquisition. And because what if these TERS came back together by six months? So it would tell you that's a short-lived benefit. So you do get added efficacy data going out for longer durations. And we saw reports coming from some of these sponsors that there was indeed still protection at six months and at nine. There's a safety aspect um, in terms of, you know, are there long-term safety issues? I agree that, that mostly for vaccines, the safety issues are all in that first couple of weeks, actually, in terms of side effects, whether they're serious or not. Uh, most of the long-term side effects have been debunked that have been reported. But even when you're looking at efficacy, looking at antibody levels, you can make predictions about whether that is a protective antibody level, but you don't know that for certain, especially when there are variants involved. And keep in mind that, that there's other aspects of the immune response, including cell-mediated immunity, that's not measured by an antibody response. And so you still need to look at clinical uh, outcomes to really determine that benefit. At least amongst your vaccine participants, I think many patients feel studies go on for such a long time to try to prove that these vaccines are indeed safe. Um, what's your sense from vaccine participants? Do they understand that the, the duration of the study is more efficacy driven as opposed to safety? I think this is a message that sometimes is lost and people are waiting for full FDA approval, for example. Sure. The, I mean, first, I just want to say thank you to all our participants in any clinical trial. Uh, it's, you know, these are people who are contributing. There are different reasons why they participate. Um, but the bottom line is all of us have taken a medicine at some point, And we have to remember that somebody volunteered uh, to, to figure out if that medicine was safe and effective. There was an enormous enthusiasm for participation in the vaccine trial. And that probably all was driven in the hopes they'd get the vaccine and have some protection. We get that, but they, like I say, they've had a high retention rate in these studies. So as, as long as we don't make the study too burdensome, that we don't try to collect too much information that it causes too much fatigue and continue to thank our participants and encourage them that there is value to this. And as you see with all the news coming out about these variants and the questions about whether these vaccines will offer protection for the variants, I think they are still motivated to try to know whether they too are protected, whether they should get a booster vaccine or whether, you know, what the future may be. So I, I find that, that it's, it's very important to stay in communication with your participants and keep reminding them of the value and the importance of it and thank them for their participation. What, what's your sense, uh, Patrick, about um, the studies and the fact that unlike most uh, vaccine studies where the knowledge is contained within the study, with EUAs, at least not for some of the vaccines you have, but the Johnson & Johnson one at least, there's a much larger group of people that have received the vaccine for which there's at least safety data and, and this sort of information. Um, what, what's your sense of trying to, how to integrate that at least, you know, um, if you were, for example, sitting on a, um, uh, the FDA, for example, um, how do you balance sort of the, the study knowledge 
within there. And then also all this reporting data of side effects that you hear in the news. And, you know, we're not sure if myocarditis is a vaccine side effect or not, or tinnitus or, you know, any of a host of things like Bell's palsy and so on. Yeah, it's, we have to remember that there's, there's all kinds of data that, that contribute and we have to try to sort that. And in a blinded controlled study, we have greater ability to try to tease out whether there is a safety issue or not. Uh, people that look at any package insert, look at these long lists of potential side effects and the percentage of patient subjects who participated had them and trying to make a judgment on that. But as you know, in clinical trials, things happen. And what we tell our subjects is, you just tell us. We're not trying to figure out whether it's because of the drug or because of the vaccine. We just want to know. You stub your toe, you lose your hair, you get a rash. We write it all down. And then when you break the code, you can see if these events seem to occur more often in the vaccinated versus the placebo. There is the post-marketing um, observations, which is where we get a lot more data. And we have to be careful about the anecdote an event happened and you don't know with certainty that it was because of the drug or the, the vaccine, but you can be suspicious about it, particularly if there are multiple similar cases. So in, in a drug study where say we enroll 500 or 1,000 patients and, uh, but the adverse event of, of concern occurs in one in 20,000, well, we're not gonna pick it up until now we start treating many, many people. So in the vaccine studies, generally there were about 30,000 subjects, which is a lot. So you can know a lot about safety issues, but now that you've begun to vaccinate millions of people, you have the greater potential to pick up side effects. And what we have to be careful about is when you, if you do find an event that seems like it's got some connection to the vaccine, even if it's rare, one in a million cases, you then have to balance that risk against the, the risk of not having vaccinated people. And for anyone who's taking care of the patients affected by COVID, you, you've seen that the side effects are quite severe, not just death, but, but very severe complications, prolonged hospitalizations, and even this post-COVID syndrome uh, that we're still trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of uh, over the years concerns about Guillain-Barre syndrome and influenza, and it was very hard to discern the frequency since Guillain-Barre occurs and uh, is, is well known to occur after Campylobacter infection, for example, but less certain it's truly tied uh, to influenza, um, uh, but there are temporally associated cases. Of course, when you have very rare events, uh, such as with the uh, Janssen vaccine um, or AstraZeneca, uh, these very unusual clots, um, you know, that sort of raises the attention, even though the frequency uh, is one in a million, uh, perhaps, or something of that line. It just uh, then, as you pointed out, has uh, public health uh, um, balance uh, with the efficacy of the vaccine. What, what was sort of the response since you do have both AstraZeneca and Janssen participants? Um, I assume most of them had already gotten past the, the point of um, recent immunization. Yes, and, and it doesn't mean that their fears don't, you know, are there and you have to find a way to communicate. And we have to work with the companies to make sure that the communication is consistent, accurate, uh, and in a language that the subjects can understand. 
Um, you may remember that early in the AstraZeneca uh, study, there was a hold put on it because of an unusual neurologic event that happened in the UK. And it took the FDA a bit longer to, to decide that they were gonna permit continued um, you know, ongoing conduct of the study. So that creates, creates apprehension and nervousness and people are trying to figure out what's happening. The issue with the J&J, uh, &J, with the clotting, um, I had people calling me that had received the vaccine you know, in an authorized manner and wanting to know what their risks were and they were well past the timeframe. Um, and again, the risks are very, very rare. But, and even with the Guillain-Barre story, you know, the, F, the FDA tracks and the CDC tracks these events, still not knowing if there's a connection with, with vaccines. And the numbers that occur in a given year in, this, in the US, you can count on one hand. Um, and yet you think of the millions of vaccines. So these are events that happen. Are they due to the uh, vaccine? Perhaps, can we figure out the mechanism um, and I'll use as an example, the early um, rollout uh, in the UK, there was anaphylaxis that occurred in some subjects. Um, and, and so that we learned then that you can have a different strategy for some people. If we were to figure out the clotting issue, it might be that we would identify some people at greater risk that perhaps should not get the vaccine or some other prophylactic measure could be instituted but you got to understand the pathophysiology before you can recommend anything. Yeah, I think these are some of the uh, thorniest issues, these very rare events. It's sort of what I call the fear of flying, you know, where uh, there's uncertainty. And of course, people uh, crave certainty. And, and we in science at least try to balance that, but um, it, it's often a very hard perspective. Well, I, I really wanted to thank you uh, for some of the insights uh, on, uh, as a principal, as a, I'm sorry, an, an investigator conducting vaccine trials, but also I uh, want to thank you for indeed carrying out these trials, you and your staff, as well as the, the patients, which has just been an invaluable contribution to uh, the success of vaccines, which we're now really witnessing uh, at this stage. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope uh, you found these uh, series uh, instructive and uh, look forward to our next session in the upcoming weeks. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.